This episode is sponsored by Marvel Strike Force. If you're looking for a superhero-themed mobile game, look no further. Marvel Strike Force is a mobile squad RPG that allows you to battle with your favorite team of superheroes and supervillains in a fight to save the universe against threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse. Your goal is to power up your favorite characters to complete missions, unlock gear and other resources, and beat other players in PvP modes like Alliance War and Real-Time Arena. The game is currently celebrating its 6 year anniversary, and they're letting new users in on the celebration by providing free stuff, courtesy of our unique link in the show notes. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses, and if you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all of the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out. We've received a unique promo code, so new users can follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. That's M-A-X-P-O-O-L. Thanks to Marvel Strike Force for sponsoring this episode. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets and so much more download the app in virginia today and get 150 dollars in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at betmgm betmgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly see betmgm.com for terms 21 plus only virginia only new customer offer subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days please gamble responsibly gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER promotional offer not available in washington dc hello everyone and welcome to the slash film show today is thursday june 22nd 2023 on today's episode we are going to be gathering around the virtual water cooler and talking about what we've been up to my name is ben pearson i'm an editor at slashfilm.com and i'm joined on today's episode by slash film editor and chief film critic chris evangelista hello all right chris let's get into it what have you been watching recently okay let's see i have to open this document which i accidentally closed okay (laughs) so i saw the flash which is of course the latest dc whatever they're calling it now movie and uh it's not doing well at the box office and uh there was a lot of hype going into this and most of the hype was coming from the folks at Warner brothers. I think David Zaslav was, he called it like the best superhero movie he had ever seen. <laughs> and, and James Gunn was like, Oh, it's amazing. And uh, the answer is it's not really that good. Um, but it's not, it's not the abomination that some people are trying to make it out to be. I think it's, it's mostly a solid, okay superhero movie uh michael keaton is great as batman it's great to have him back um ezra miller is fine uh they get a little annoying to me after a while especially in this movie where they're constantly talking and and being like you know just like a motor mouth uh Mm -hmm. but i i didn't hate it i don't think it's very good i don't think i'll like ever really want to revisit it but i don't think it's as bad as some people are making it out to be um yes there are some pretty wonky visual effects in there uh that distract me distracted me especially at the end but you know it's i think i think it's like a an okay movie it's like the definition of like this is okay yeah i think one of the things you said um that you were looking forward to was that it was a movie that doesn't seem to be overly concerned with like setting up a ton of other movies um yeah. so did you appreciate that when you saw it like that sort of um self-contained feeling almost it, it kind of had even though it like goes back and references other things in the, in the past it doesn't necessarily seem to be like laying a bunch of groundwork moving forward yeah you know not not to give away the ending but i've seen a lot of people be like complain that the the, the final shot of the movie or the final moment of the movie is like a cheat or something because it doesn't, it doesn't set up what comes next, but that's fine. Like that's like, if you're, I know people have, have been like, uh, what's the word conditioned to just expect that from superhero movies. But I would, I would love if more superhero movies just end and they're not like, here's what's coming next. Like just, just tell me a self-contained story. (laughs) Yeah. And I do think this movie does that. And you know, for that, I give it, I give it credit. 
the only other question I want to ask you about it is like, did the emotional aspect of it work for you um, either like personally or just like on a storytelling level? Did you find that to be effective? Like the, the sort of, again, we don't have to get into like specifics, but the sort of uh, near the ending of the movie, there's this big sort of um, emotional climax. Did that hit you at all? Not really. I mean, I didn't, I wasn't like, check this. Out. I, I wasn't like, <laughs> like, I'm Dismissive too, of it. Yeah, I'm too cool for this, but it didn't really do a whole lot for me. Okay. Yeah. That was just a moment that I've seen a lot of people, um, even people who don't necessarily like the movie sort of admit like, oh, well, they got me with that moment. Like that, that was well executed or whatever. So I was just curious how, how that landed for you. Um, okay. Let's get into uh, Extraction 2, Chris. You and I both watched this and uh, I think... I was going to say famously, but nobody gives a crap about us. So uh, yeah. uh, you did not like the first Extraction film. I no. liked it uh, a lot more than you did, but still found it to be, I don't know, like a B movie. <laughs> like not yeah. not great, but like fairly effective and, and pretty decent for what it was trying to do. What did you think about Extraction 2? You know, Extraction 2, I'll give it this. It's better than the first movie. It's it's uh, the action is better. Um, I was a little more invested in it than I was in the first movie, but I still don't love these movies. They're such ugly looking movies. Like I just keep thinking about, and I, this might be an unfair comparison, but I don't care. Uh, I just keep thinking about like John Wick, especially John Wick four, which just looks gorgeous. It's a gorgeous looking movie. And these, these extraction movies, they're so like, I mean, the first one is very, uh, it's like orange tinted because it's mm-hmm. like, and this one is just very gray and it's, it's got that parking lot color palette to it. And I get it. You know, they're not trying to make a beautiful movie here. They're trying to make a, uh, you know, an ugly <laughs> action flick, but it's so boring to look at and drab. And I, I said this uh, in my letterboxd review of the film, go follow me on letterboxd everyone. But, um, I, I said basically, you know, that that oneer, you know, the it's like I think it's like a twenty minute, twenty one minute oneer mm-hmm. action scene. You know, that looked cool, but it's still like it's not a real oneer. It, it's pieced together digitally, and I just keep coming back to Martin Scorsese. Famously, has a, a oneer in Goodfellas, and when you break it down, all that is it's literally just a camera following two people as they walk down a series of hallways, and that is a million times more exciting than all the shooting and people getting set on fire and all this stuff, because it's like a real one shot. It's really Scorsese following these people and never cutting away. And it took, you know, all this work to shoot that. And I'm more impressed by that than we shot a bunch of stuff and then digitally stitch it together. So that's, that's where I fall on it. I can see that. Uh, I enjoyed Extraction 2 quite a bit. I thought it was a significant uh, step up from the first movie. And and I actually, you know, kind of went into that. I knew that Wonder was coming. Wonder was a big part of the first movie. I think it was only like seven minutes or 15 minutes or something like that. Not not nearly as long as, as this, um, this one in the second movie. So I, I knew that they were going bigger and like just the idea of going bigger in a sequel um, sort of by default kind of rubs me the wrong way. Like that's not necessarily, that shouldn't be the default. I don't think like you don't have yeah. to, you know, blow things out and go bigger. So I kind of went into it with my arms crossed a little bit, like, all right, is this really gonna, you know, be worth all of the time and effort that you put into this? And I actually think that it it was, I think it was like pretty incredible, even with the, those stitches. I think the, there's so much like practical stuff within those individual sort of mini moments, if you want to call them that sort of between stitches where like they actually lit Chris Hemsworth on fire and like, you know, the, the prison sequence um, that, that part of the escape I thought was just incredibly effective and like the train stuff. Yes. There's like a lot of digital stuff going on there and and certainly the entire thing was not practical, um, but they like actually did fly like a real helicopter in there and like really, yeah. you know, they could have done a lot worse. They could have leaned more heavily on CG stuff. And especially with this being like a Netflix quote unquote blockbuster, um, <laughs> that that's what I would expect them to do is take the easy way out. And I, I my sort of giving this movie credit statement is that they they could have taken the easy way out a lot of times and didn't. Um, that's maybe not the highest praise that that a movie can, can receive, but uh, but for you know, given the context of this movie, I thought it was um, a pretty admirable job they did of putting that together. And then I thought that like emotionally, the the core of the movie and the characters were like more um, like better rounded and like uh, better explored in this movie. 
I thought the Idris Elba stuff, like it was reported that he was going to be in this movie, like, I don't know, a week or two before it came out. Um, he's in it for like, <laughs> you know, 70 seconds or yeah. something. It's like, he, he's, he chugs a beer. That's his big thing. <laughs> he has like, he gets a beer and he drinks like half of it in one gulp. And I was like, <laughs> is that it? Is that it? This character's character development. He loves beer. Is that what's going on here? Yeah. He seems like a clear setup for extraction three, which, um, you know, after this movie, I'm actually like interested in seeing what they do with it. And, and I, I fully agree with you, Chris, that like the color palette and the aesthetics of the movie are not the prettiest. Like it's set in Eastern Europe somewhere, I think in Georgia or something. So like everything has this, yeah, like slight gray look to it. And I just want extraction three to take place in like Fiji or something like where, you know, there's nice. Yeah. There's actual uh, colors and like, um, geographical differences than, you know, the stuff that we've seen already in, in these movies. So they should go to New Zealand. New Zealand looks gorgeous in all the Lord of the Rings movies. Just have, have Tyler Rake running around New Zealand. That's (laughs) what that'll work. Yeah, that would be awesome. Um, I I thought the, uh, the death by gym equipment stuff that happened was like pretty well done and and well executed and well conceived and all of that. Um, so yeah, I I came away like a fan of it. The action is very, it's, it's solid action. It's not like, oh, this is boring, you know, it, and it's, it's like nonstop too. So it'll, you know, it'll, it's, it's an easy to watch movie. I just wish these things were better. If they're going to yeah. keep churning them out. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So actually I think the next two movies that you're going to talk about, I don't think I've ever heard of them. So what else have you been watching? Right. So I watched the white Buffalo, which has a new um, Blu-ray from Kino Lorber. That's how I, I saw it. And this is a, a, a Western from 1977 and it stars Charles Bronson as wild Bill Hickok. And uh, he, he has, he keeps having these dreams about a giant white Buffalo and I'm talking like it's like the size of a house, and he's he's like determined to go find it and kill it. Uh, it's it's basically like Moby Dick, you know, where he's Ahab and the white buffalo is the whale. And along the way, he also meets um, uh, Crazy Horse, who was you know a, a native uh, warrior, and they they sort of team up to find. Even though Wild Bill Hickok is famous for for uh, murdering uh indigenous people he still teams up with with crazy horse to take down the white the white buffalo and uh it's just a uh just a weird weird movie because the white buffalo it's like a an animatronic creation and so it's like this, they keep cutting to this giant white buffalo that runs around murder like the buffalo straight up just murders people huh for, for reasons that are never explained. It's just like this killer Buffalo. And I don't know. I thought it was just an interesting movie. It was just an interesting, weird sort of surreal Western where, uh, you know, characters keep having these dreams about the Buffalo, but the Buffalo is real for some reason. And none of this is really explained. It just happens. And I, I don't know. I got a kick out of it primarily because I just loved the look of the Buffalo. I just love this giant, robot buffalo they built for the movie and it's just this killing machine uh which i don't think real buffaloes were as as bloodthirsty as this buffalo um <laughs> but yeah i i thought i dug this a lot um it, i had heard about it but i'd never seen it and when i got the blu-ray i was like finally i'll check this out uh slim pickens is in this you know everybody loves slim pickens yeah uh kim novak is in this it's uh she's only in like one scene but it was interesting that like I, I only really know Kim Novak from, you know, Alfred Hitchcock movies. I'm, I'm not like, I watched a bunch of Kim Novak movies. So it's just interesting to see her in something that isn't a Hitchcock movie. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, The White Buffalo. Uh, I think it's it's actually streaming on, on Tubi, I think, if you want to watch it for free uh, with commercials. But uh, wow. I would say if you don't do that, I've never heard of this movie, Chris, but I would say if you don't watch it, uh, definitely do yourselves a favor if you're listeners, if you're out there and curious about this and just uh, Google the poster for The White Buffalo yes. because I'm looking at it right now. It's incredible. The tagline is charging, roaring, breathing fire and hell. The white earthquake is here. And it's just <laughs> this gigantic white buffalo. Um, does this, do you think this was like a, a forerunner of Jurassic Park, Chris? Like a giant animatronic creature? Like, what, how would you compare 
you know, this, this, um, the work from 1977 to like what Spielberg did later. You know, I think this is more of a direct uh, reaction to Jaws because Jaws came out in 73. This came out in 77. And I feel like because eventually there's a third character there. So it's like three guys hunting the monster. And I feel like they definitely were like, we need our own big animal movie like Jaws. What are we going to do? Uh, <laughs> how about a white buffalo? And then they went from there. I, I really think like this is a direct sort of like reaction to Jaws where like the, the producers are like, we need our own Jaws. And what we got is this. Okay. <laughs> All right. So uh, it sounds like you enjoyed it though. I mean, it- I, I dug it. It's not great. It's a little, it gets a little slow in the middle and it's, it's kind of dated in how it, it's, it's made. It just has that sort of dated feeling to it, but it's, it's never like dull. It was just like an interesting weird. It's like, a, you don't really see a lot. It's like a almost supernatural. And I kind of, like that that was that was sort of thrown in there like the supernatural western okay so that's called the white buffalo what else have we been watching chris uh i watched a movie called don't bother to knock which is on the criterion channel and it stars marilyn monroe and uh i obviously everyone knows who marilyn monroe is but i feel like marilyn monroe is is underrated as an actual like good actor like i feel like everyone thinks of her as you know this blonde bombshell who died tragically but she, you know, she took her craft really seriously. Like she went to the actor's studio. She studied really hard to be an actor and she's really good in this movie. So this movie is about, uh, this guy is, his name is Jed. He's playing Richard Woodmark and, um, he's going through a breakup. Uh, and one night he's in a hotel room and he looks across the, the way and in another room, he sees this beautiful woman who's played by Marilyn Monroe and he calls her. He, you know, he gets the phone number and he calls her and he's like, Hey baby, why don't I come over there? That's not what he says, but (laughs) he's like, Hey, hot stuff. I want to come over there. You know what I'm saying? And she's like, Oh yes, come over. But what he doesn't know is she's out of her friggin' mind. And, um, she's technically supposed to be babysitting this kid in this hotel room. And she doesn't tell the guy that she's just like, Oh, come on over. And he comes over and, he, he slowly starts to realize that this woman is out of her mind and it just goes from there. And so it's sort of like a psychological thriller where Mal Monroe is, is the crazy person. And hmm. um, I thought this was just really cool. It's a really cool movie from 1952. Um, it's, this is also a movie where it's really dated. There, there are multiple musical numbers <laughs> where like, cause it like there, the hotel has like this bar and um, there's a singer who's played by Anne Bancroft, actually a young Anne Bancroft. Oh. And, she, so there are multiple scenes where she's just like in the club singing and it's like they probably could have cut these scenes. They don't need these multiple moments where Anne Bancroft is singing. But uh, yeah, this is just a really different sort of like I don't I don't think Marilyn Rowe had many roles like this where she's playing like this emotionally, mentally unstable character. And she she really does a great job and it just makes you realize it's just like another reminder that there's a there was so much more to Marilyn Monroe than like that, that tabloid image. And you know, she deserves better. She deserves more people to be like, you know, this, this person was a very good actor. You know, there's more to her than what we were used to. Yeah, that's great. There's a, um, a collection of Marilyn Monroe movies on the criterion uh, channel right now. And one of them is called Niagara, which I've never seen before, but that's been on my list of things to check out for a long, long time. I don't know if you, have you ever seen that one, Chris? I haven't, I know of it. I just haven't seen it. Okay. Uh, is this also in that, uh, in that yeah. collection? Is that where you watch it? Okay. Yeah. That's how I saw it. It was part of that collection and I had never seen it before. And I'm, I'm trying to broaden my horizons, you know, watch, I, I told myself, you know, I, I get so bogged down in like watching stuff I've already seen before just cause it's like a, like, like a comfort thing. Like I know what I'm going to get. I'm going to watch this again, but mm-hmm. You know, I have the Criterion channel. I, I'm trying harder to to watch older movies that I haven't seen before because I like I said, I get so hung up on familiar things. So I'm trying to trying to branch out. And this was something I hadn't seen before and I saw it in that collection and I said, Why not? And I'm glad I did, because it's a it's a good movie. Yeah. Excellent. Okay, so let's take a quick break and then we'll be right back. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then 
Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. All right. So uh, last week, Chris, I had a a whole episode with Brad where we were talking about uh, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. And I came down not liking the movie, and Brad was doing an admirable job of trying to defend it as best he could. Um, I basically just like sprung it on him before we, I didn't even tell him before we started recording, like, hey, I'm just going to bash this movie. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> like, you tell me why you like it. Um, so I've been going through and, and rewatching the Indiana Jones movies in preparation for Dial of Destiny. And so uh, over the past few days, I've, I've rewatched Last Crusade and Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. And uh, I guess I, I wanted to ask you, Chris, like before we start here, what do you think about Temple of Doom? Uh, I'm somewhere in the middle of it. I think it has some great set pieces in it because how can it not? It's, it's Steven Spielberg. Uh, that guy knows what he's doing. Um, so it has some great moments in it. Like the whole opening in the nightclub is so good. Uh, and uh, But a lot of it is just, I don't know. It doesn't work for me a lot. It's It's a very loud movie you know no offense to kate capshaw but after like 10 minutes of her screaming her head off i start to be like okay like (laughs) i i I get it i don't i don't really need a whole movie of this um and you know a lot of the the cultural stuff is you know when i was a kid i was like hell yeah they're eating monkey brains but i watch it now and i'm just like this is very culturally insensitive (laughs) like you just you can't like you can't get beyond that and i'm not saying you can't enjoy the movie because you absolutely should be able to enjoy movies that have these uh, <laughs> these dated things in them. But when I watch it now and they're all just sitting around, it's like, oh, we're going to eat a bunch of snakes. It's just like, <laughs> all right, they're they're laying on a bit thick here. Like, oh, other cultures, they're silly. Like, oh, all right. <laughs> yeah, um, it definitely felt like the most childish Steven Spielberg moment, I think, that I can remember. It just sort of was him being like, Oh, look how gross everything is. Like it's a it's a really gross it's a mean, gross movie. It's it's like definitely the grossest Indiana Jones movie. Yeah, I actually got two emails that I wanted to read here um from uh listeners um responding to that episode. So before we get on with the, the rest of the Indiana Jones talk, I just want to read these real quick. So um Donnie from Seattle says, I'm here to exclaim that Temple of Doom absolutely rules to this day. It was always my favorite indie movie as a kid. I have a distinct memory of renting it on VHS and watching it six times in a row before returning it. What I liked about Temple of Doom as a kid is still what makes it effective today. The dark tone and the breakneck pacing. This movie moves like a theme park ride in a good way. And as someone into all things horror, I really appreciate the darker tone and creepy cult shenanigans. It's also possible that no one has ever looked hotter than Harrison Ford in this movie. And Short Round is one of the best characters in the entire franchise. Is Temple of Doom the best indie movie? Of course not. But it may be the most rewatchable for me personally. There's never a dull moment. I think the entire opening musical number and poisoning sequence is one of the best in Spielberg's career. Uh, the first indie, uh, the first three indie films are all ranked five stars for me, but I have a real soft spot for Temple of Doom. Give yourselves over to the joys of this creepy roller coaster ride, bask in Harrison Ford's hotness, and celebrate the greatness of Short Round. Stop comparing it to Raiders and enjoy it as its own adventure. So, I thought That's that was fair. yeah, a pretty uh, well well done uh, email there. And then uh, Ben from Pennsylvania said. I just listened to the episode where you were discussing Temple of uh, Doom. I thought I'd offer the perspective of somebody with no nostalgia who watched it for the first time last week. So, Chris, in case you didn't listen to that episode, Brad was saying that he he thinks maybe he watched Temple of Doom more than the other films as a kid. So he has sort of like a nostalgic uh, soft spot, yeah, spot for it. I definitely think that's a thing. Like the movie you grew up with is the movie you think is great. Like a lot of people think the Goonies is a great movie and it's actually really bad. And the reason, <laughs> yeah. and the reason people love the Goonies is because they grew up watching it over and over again, probably at their grandparents' house while their parents were out doing something. And, mm-hmm. and you know, I'm not saying you're wrong. Like you're allowed to love those movies, but don't let's not pretend they're like great movies. 
movie. Let's not <laughs> pretend that Goonies is a great movie. Yeah, so I was curious about uh, Ben from Pennsylvania's perspective here. He says, uh, I'd never seen any of the Indiana Jones movies and started watching them last week to prepare for Dial of Destiny. I enjoyed Raiders, but was kind of put off because I, I had assumed Indy was more of a James Bond type, the perfect hero and adventurer, and was surprised by how much of the movie he spent getting beat up, both physically and from the villains stealing treasures out from under him, and how goofy the whole thing was. I'm going to interrupt this and just say... Ben from Pennsylvania. That's the point. That's that's the, what makes Raiders great. That's awesome. Uh, okay, so jumping back in, he said, it was, I was even more dismayed watching Temple of Doom because I had many of the same thoughts you did. I thought Willie was a massive downgrade from Marion. I had a hard time accepting the reality of the movie, watching short round punch grown adults and seeing them go flying <laughs> off cliffs and Andy, <laughs> and Andy becoming an actual zombie. And I was most disappointed in how the story went from a globetrotting adventure where we saw Andy trying to solve solve puzzles to almost the entire movie being spent in one location where he was just reacting to booby booby traps and escaping. So imagine my surprise when I reached last crusade and the whole thing clicked for me. It felt like a direct continuation of Raiders with even more adventure and fun. And for me personally, a better handle on the character of Indiana Jones. Plus I really enjoyed Sean Connery subverting my expectations for who Indy's dad would be. I also think it made me enjoy Raiders more in retrospect by echoing so many of the scenes from it. Having now seen all three, Temple of Doom definitely feels completely out of place, and I don't know if I'd ever feel the need to watch it again. So uh, thank you for those emails. Um, yeah, good good uh, sort of both sides aspect of, of that conversation that Brad and I were having. Um, so yeah, I think that's a good bridge to, to talk a little bit about Last Crusade. Like, Chris, what are your, what are your thoughts on uh, Last Crusade? Man, I love Last Crusade. Um, and I, again, this could be because it's probably the one I watched the most when I was a kid. But Last Crusade is so much fun. I don't think it's the best indie movie. Raiders is the best indie movie. Uh, but Last Crusade, I think, is the most entertaining Indiana Jones movie. It's just a nonstop entertainment fest from start to finish. It's very much a course correction movie. It's very much, you know... Spielberg being like, all right, people don't love Temple of Doom as much as Raiders, so I'm going to go back and give them something. It's it's like the uh, the Rise of Skywalker, but good. <laughs> <laughs> it's, yeah. it, and so, you know, but Sean Connery is just a great addition to the franchise. Uh, it's just a endlessly enjoyable movie. I just, I watch that movie and I'm just like giddy at how, how fun that goddamn movie is. It's just a just such a fun movie from start to finish. And uh, yeah, so it's not my favorite, but I think it is the most entertaining. Yeah, I think I've seen Last Crusade probably about the same number of times that I've seen Raiders, but I never as a kid did the thing where I watched all of the Indiana Jones movies in a row or anything. Like, I, you know, I would just sort of, I, I probably, I think I saw Temple of Doom one time as a kid and then one time like 15 years ago and that's it or, uh, before last week's uh, rewatch. Um, so that one I would just sort of like factored out almost entirely. But the first two movies I watched a ton as a kid, but like never really in a row. So I, I almost forgot or didn't realize until this viewing how much Last Crusade takes from Raiders and, and really is kind of like, it's not the same movie, and but it's kind of like a loose remake. Like there's a yeah. lot of the same stuff, the same beats almost in that movie. And I would kind of forgotten like just how similar those two films are. So I guess the question is like, does that, uh, does that matter? Does that, um, does that bother you at all as, as a viewer, Chris, I guess, when you, when you approach this franchise, you know, it, it's, it's, I don't think it, it doesn't really bother me. I, I, I agree with what you're saying, obviously. And I do think it's very much like let's if it ain't broke, don't fix it sort of thing. But uh, I, I do think it's different enough sort of to, yeah. to stand on its own. But I do agree that it's very much being like, all right, what do we do with Raiders? Let's just do that. I mean, you know, the Nazis are back and it's another religious artifact mm -hmm. and uh, you know, it's like a big action set piece in the desert near the yeah, end. Yeah, it's 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 it is very much like let's just do that again. But it it just works so well, so I can't complain. Yeah, I love like the treasure hunt aspect of it, like all the the Grail mythology and all the stuff surrounding that. Like it's probably just like pure nonsense when you when you you know break down the actual like um, historical facts of it or whatever. Yeah. But like as a sort of pulpy adventure story, like all the stuff where they go to Venice and he's like. X marks the spot and they're yeah. just like it, it, it all of that stuff just comes together really in a really really satisfying way where it feels like a true um like a, a true quest you know where like people are actually yeah out there solving puzzles and like actively um 
on a hunt for something that uh, that to me, um, Temple of Doom feels like a more passive movie in that way. So yeah. I appreciate getting back to that sort of pacing element. And then like the ending of Last Crusade is just an all timer. Like it's so freaking good. Um, you know, the the three trials, the, the challenges and all of that kind of stuff. And um, if you are a listener and you like that part of the movie specifically, stay tuned to SlashFilm.com coming up because there's a, a great piece that we're about to publish uh, if I do say so myself that, I've, <laughs> that I put together, I spoke with a lot of people who worked on the ending of that movie. Um, so I think that's going to go up on slash film on uh, Sunday morning or something like that. So uh, stay tuned. And then maybe I'll, I'll put a link to it in the show notes next week or something. But um, yeah. What do you think of, of that whole like three challenges and the, the grail night and all that stuff at the end of the movie, Chris? Oh, I love it. I love that that grail night is waiting 600 years for that. And then you just, <laughs> <laughs> just waiting 600 years <laughs> what the hell was he doing all that time i want to know but uh i guess he was like reading books or something it just, it's <laughs> like but um I, it's so good the it's it's so friggin enjoyable like the whole ah but in the latin jehovah begins with an i and he <laughs> yeah. falls he's like j and he falls immediately through that that kills me and i remember how many times i see the movie i just hit the way he's like j he's so sure of himself yeah, <laughs> he immediately falls through the floor. It's so good, and then that whole leap of faith where there's like, if you stop and think about it for more than a minute, it does not work. It's like, how <laughs> how did he not see that was there? But it doesn't matter because it, it works so well in the in the context of the scene. But yeah. uh, man, it's so good. Yeah, it's uh, that part in in particular. That challenge is like the most meaningful to me because. You know, Indy, he, he as a as a character, he's seen like some crazy shit in, in the past two movies because because Temple of Doom is a prequel, so that that technically happens first, and then Raiders, like the end of the movie, you know, he he like comes to believe and and witness, although his eyes are closed, the power of the Ark and like the the sort of supernatural uh, religious. Um, yeah, like the sheer power that this thing has. But as a character, he always sort of is is like a skeptic, right? Like he's he's not fully on board with all this stuff. I think because he immerses himself in the world of all these different cultures and myths and lore, and he calls things bedtime stories all the time. And he, I think he just like has an inherent skepticism about uh, the the powers that um, all these different stories claim that these certain objects have. Uh, but the idea of like his dad being shot, bleeding out on the floor, you know, he's finally getting to the point where he's able to like reconcile with his father. Like they've been, you know, talking more than they ever have in like 20 years or something. And the only thing that he can do is like do what he was born to do. You know, what all of his sort of uh, accumulated knowledge has led him to do, which is like use his archeology span powers basically to find the friggin' Holy grail to save his own father. And then he gets to this chasm and it looks like there's no way across and he just has to like he has to actually believe he's he's forced to you know he can't science his way out of it he can't use facts out of it he has to just take this leap of faith and it's just such a like an incredible um structural storytelling choice to have him do that with those stakes being as high as they are for him personally at that moment i just think it's like incredibly well realized so absolutely um, absolutely Okay, and then and then the, like the ending of the movie too, when like they get out of the the temple and like they Brody is off. just like riding away like a maniac, almost falling off of his horse, and then like the the John Williams music is blaring, they literally ride off into the sunset. Like it's such a perfect ending, and and I am going to argue that that is definitely where the whole Indiana Jones experiment should have just come to an end because it's like so perfect a conclusion. Yeah. Uh, but then you have Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, which came out in two thousand eight. And I'm sure listeners, you know, many of our listeners probably remember seeing that movie in theaters. I, I am embarrassed to say this, Chris, but I dressed up as Indiana Jones to see this movie in the theater. Wow. That's how excited I was to, to see this because uh, Last Crusade came out in 89. So I was four years old. And so I don't think I saw that movie in theaters. I definitely have no memory of seeing it in theaters. Um, but Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, like Indiana Jones was my franchise growing up. I, I watched those the first and third movie so many times. And so I was so excited for Crystal Skull and just came away like utterly crestfallen by the movie on that first <laughs> viewing in theaters. Like I was, I was so, um, all the wind had been knocked out of me. I was just like so depressed watching it. And then, so I, I don't think I revisited it again until uh, two nights ago or whatever. And, um, 
I, I think I like it more than Temple of Doom on on rewatch. It's it's definitely not great in my view. Uh, I feel like it doesn't have that feeling that that sort of um, ineffable Indiana Jones feeling. And I think a lot a large part of it is the setting. Like by moving it into the late fifties, you're kind of taking it out of that pulpy thirties period where Indiana Jones was forged and. Um, you know, making it something it's not almost with the whole alien subplot and all of that kind of stuff. Like it just kind of feels like you're taking the character and putting him, dropping him into like an entirely different milieu. And I don't think it's super successful, but there is a lot of like decent stuff in that movie. So I think you did a full episode on this of uh 21st century Spielberg, yeah. um, your, your podcast, which people should go listen to. But uh, if you wouldn't mind, Chris, like remind me what your thoughts are on Crystal Skull. You know, it's not, I don't think it's nearly as bad as people think it is. Um, I think it has some great set pieces in it. Uh, the and It has some great just direction in it. Because again, it's Steven Spielberg. He Even when he's not firing on all cylinders, or even when the movie itself isn't great, he's firing on all cylinders. I think that's fair to say. Mm. Um, I, I have a theory about why this movie doesn't work as well as it does for most people. And that's uh, it, the, the, the digital effects. Because if you go back... And you watch those first three indie movies. What makes one of the things, one of the many things that makes them so special is all those effects are practical. They're all industrial light and magic, like building models and using matte paintings and doing all this, you know, using cloud tanks. Cloud tanks are my favorite thing in the world. Really. <laughs> they make clouds in, in fish tanks and they, you know, put them in the sky and it looks like dark, ominous storm clouds. And, you know, I love that shit, man. It's, it's so cool. It's so cool to watch practical effects because it's, you know, it's it's i'm not saying hard work doesn't go into digital effects but it's like a different kind of work yeah you can see the work yeah it's tangible and i think everyone is so used to indiana jones movies being that that the minute you see digital effects you're like what the hell is going especially because the first shot of the movie is a goddamn cartoon gopher sticking out of the ground and it's (laughs) like really spielberg you really (laughs) had to start the movie with this cartoon groundhog whatever it is and there's a scene where you know mutt williams is swinging through the tree and it's like none of it looks real like absolutely none of it looks even close to being real and you again you go back and you contrast it with with uh, uh last crusade where there's like this big chase scene and they did all that with either real like vehicles or models of vehicles and mm-hmm. it all looks it looks absolutely real and you you watch came to the crystal skull and it's just all this digital shit flying around. And I feel like that is really what throws everyone off. It's cause no one, no one is, was really used to that. And I'm kind of dreading, I haven't seen uh, dial of destiny yet. I'm, I'm kind of dreading again, that happening because I, you know, there's been some clips and there's a clip of like a chase scene. And during the, the chase, Indiana Jones like jumps from one car to the next. And he looks in the clip I saw, he looks so CGI-y that it's, mm-hmm. it's like, uh, like, couldn't they have just gotten a stuntman and had the stuntman jump from one vehicle? to It doesn't even have to be moving. You can shoot that against a green screen. Like, did they really have to make rubber-limbed Indiana Jones look like Gumby as he jumps from one car to the next? Yeah. So I just, I really wish... James Mangold had been like, we're going to do this as practical as we can. And maybe he did. Again, I haven't seen it. Maybe there's a lot more practical stuff in it than I'm expecting. But I do feel like the minute you introduce CGI to Indiana Jones, it loses that charm because you need that, that pulpy serial tangible feel. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think, um, Douglas Slocum, who was the cinematographer of the first three movies, brought such a unique stamp to the look of indie. Those movies are so gorgeous. And Janusz Kaminski, Spielberg's longtime cinematographer, is great. Like he's he's an incredible artist. And like his work with Spielberg uh, across the past 20 years or whatever it's been is unbelievable. But when you're when he's stepping into um, a clearly established visual template and trying to do something that somebody else created and like mimic that style it just doesn't really work very well like it, it's yeah. sort of clashing aesthetics and and so the movie doesn't look like an indiana jones movie in the same way so that that takes away from it and then obviously like harrison ford is way older and like that stuff is dealt with a little bit in the movie like uh in the in the text of the film um so i'm not really bothered by his age very much in the movie but 
yeah, all those sort of things that add up to make it fe- to make a, a a film feel like an Indiana Jones movie. Um, yeah, like you said, all all that stuff kind of. Uh, there are a lot of obstacles. There are a lot of speed bumps um, that Crystal Skull has to overcome, and then you've got stuff like the the nuking the fridge and all that, which you know, kind of like doesn't do the movie many many favors. I think <laughs> I'm going to come out and just say it. I do not mind the nuking the fridge thing. I actually think it's kind of fun, especially that that final shot where he gets out of the fridge and he's looking up at the mushroom cloud. Like that looks incredible, and I get why people don't like it, but I feel like if you can buy. Indiana Jones finding the Holy Grail. You could buy him surviving a, a fridge rolling around on the ground. <laughs> <laughs> but he's so old in, in that movie. I don't know. Maybe I could buy like younger. Yeah, but he's Indiana. got like, he's. I know like he lost the power of the Holy Grail when he crossed that seal, but I feel like, <laughs> I feel like he's still got some of the juice. I mean, he drank from the Holy Grail, man. He's got to have, he's got to have some sort of power left in him. I mean, come on. Does it re- I, I, I refuse to believe all the Holy Grail power evaporates the minute you step out of that temple. There's got to be just like a, a tiny little bit still flowing in his veins. You know what? I've never thought about that in my entire <laughs> life. And that uh, I kind of like that theory. I like that idea that makes Crystal Skull a better movie in my mind, <laughs> knowing that like there's a little bit of a little bit of Holy Grail water. Well, grail juice still there. flowing through him. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's awesome. Uh, I, I would just say like that that shot where he comes, you know, comes out of the fridge and there's that mushroom cloud and then at the very end of the movie when the alien or interdimensional being ship is there and like everything is swirling and he's sort of standing over on that little ridge like looking out over all of that those struck me as like storyboard uh images that spielberg fell in love with and was like okay how do i uh, get to that how do i visualize this in this movie and then like worked backwards from there and i just like was not particularly uh, impressed by the storytelling decisions that it took to reach those shots, which I agree are beautiful, but like, um, I don't know at, at what cost, Chris, at what cost? So, um, <laughs> all right. So, uh, that's Indiana Jones. Um, all, all of those movies are streaming on Paramount plus right now, if you want to catch up. And then, uh, I've also been rewatching the mission impossible movies in, uh, advance of dead reckoning part one, which I'm very excited about. Chris, I'm, I'm guessing you are too. Cause I know oh, you're man. a huge fan of the mission impossible franchise. I'm, I'm seeing it next Tuesday and I cannot friggin' wait. I'm oh so- man. I'm jealous. Yeah. I just got, um, I just got, uh, tickets to see it in IMAX on, what is it? I think July 10th or something. There's a, an, a full IMAX theater in my area. Um, so I'm going to go see it then. Uh, okay. So, I'm, we're running long here, so I'm not going to go very long on these. First Mission Impossible, amazing, like holds up so incredibly well. Um, the second movie, I spent my, I, I think the second movie came out when I was 15 and I watched it a lot and I thought it was the coolest fucking thing <laughs> in the world. I remember just loving it and thinking the story was so amazing and like uh, the idea of like him teaming up with this thief, Naya Nordoff Hall, played by Tandiwe Newton, and like sending her into the lion's den with this character played by Dougery Scott or Dougery Scott. And uh and I just thought that was so clever and original and entertaining. And then I realized that uh that entire plot of the movie basically is stolen from Alfred Hitchcock's Notorious, which yeah. like really takes the the shine off of Mission Impossible 2 for me. So now knowing that and watching the movie um, again for the first time in a long time, I, I watched this movie in like an intense way when I was, you know, 15, 16 and then dropped off and have not revisited it in 20 years or something. And now uh, this movie, I, I cannot defend it anymore. I, I, I think <laughs> up until my most recent rewatch, I would have said, you know, I would have ranked this movie like way higher than everybody else. I would have like gone to bat for this movie and rewatching it. I'm like, oh, I think all the magic is is pretty much gone here. It's just not very good. Um, what do you think about Mission Impossible 2, Chris? Are you a defender? I'm I'm somewhere in the middle. I don't think it's as bad as people make it out to be. Um, it's very. Uh, I want to say when did it come out? It came I out think in- it was the year 2000. I was a, I, it feels very 90s, even though it's not, I guess, technically from the 90s, but it's got that 90s, like, Limp Bizkit is on the yep. <laughs> and it's And even, like, Tom Cruise's hair is, like, it's a, first of all, it's a gorgeous-looking, gorgeous hair, Tom Cruise. But it's, oh, yeah. it's, it's a very 90s cut. Uh, but I don't think it's as bad. It's definitely the one I like the least. Uh, it's got, like... There's like one like the team is really boring. Like there's the guy because his name is like Billy something. And it's yeah, like, they never brought him back because he stunk. Uh, <laughs> but uh, 
it's not nearly as bad as people make it out to be, but it's definitely the one. Like when I rewatch the series, it's the one I I, I rewatch the least. Yeah, yeah, it's um. You know, you've got Anthony Hopkins. You've got like a couple little things. I, I think Brendan Gleeson does a decent job with what he's given as sort of like this yeah. bio, you know, pharmaceutical sort of big, big pharma kind of guy. Um, the the uh, motorcycle sequence at the end where like hell yeah, Cruz is facing off against uh, Dougie Scott's character. Like that stuff still works for me. It's so ridiculous and over the top. Like their their beach fight where like the knife is almost going into his eye. Like. All that stuff works. I think there's way too many mask pulls in this movie, which is something that I used to embrace. But now having watched, you know, a lot of these mission movies back to back to back, that's a thing that should be used um, sparingly, but they just like completely go overboard with it in Mission Impossible 2. Um, so, you know, it, it has its moments, but yeah, I'm, I'm not prepared nearly to uh, to defend it in the way that I was, um, you know, like two weeks ago even. So uh, wow. That was, was a bit of a shame for me, a bit of a, a sad realization that I don't like something uh, nearly as much as I thought I did upon rewatch. But um, but I do, I think, like Mission Impossible 3 more than I did previously, um, especially, I guess, in, in the aftermath of MI2, uh, just seeing like the, it, it, it's, you know, came out in 2006. It feels so of the moment. I guess all of these movies do to a degree, yeah. um, or at least the first few, like once you get to Ghost Protocol and then everything after that it all kind of feels like late stage crews like there's a sameness to a lot of them it doesn't necessarily feel like those films are chasing um trends in the same way that like the james bond franchise often chased like uh overtly chased trends that other action movies were doing at the time along the way um but mi3 is you know there's a lot of lens flares. There's a lot of like JJ Abrams isms all throughout it. But I, and, and some of the, the dialogue is like very, uh, you kind of like roll your eyes at it a little bit. Like the scenes where Lawrence Fishburne is playing the, the head of the, uh, IMF or whatever. And he's like, you know, barking orders at, at Ethan Hunt and yelling at Billy Crudup and all that kind of stuff. Like it feels very like, Oh yeah. Kurtzman and Orsi were like a huge screenwriting team during yeah. this time in the, in the two thousands. And it really just feels like them. Um, but I thought that the action was really great. I really appreciated the relationship between Ethan Hunt and Michelle Monaghan's character. I thought that was like really well done. And then Philip Seymour Hoffman, man, like he is so uh, good. He's the best villain I think of the franchise. And I, I don't imagine that's a, a controversial statement. Um, so what do you think about MI3? Yeah, I, I like it a lot more than people seem to like it. Um, it's, it's very JJ Abramsy. Uh, it's, it just feels like him. Um, it, it doesn't really, it feels like the least like a mission impossible movie, if that makes sense, especially compared to what came after it. But, uh, some of it is so much fun. Like the whole thing with, with Carrie Russell's character, I thought was just a neat little, Mm-hmm. side trek side quest or whatever you want to call yeah. it uh but philip seymour hoppin as you said is so goddamn good he's like too good for this movie because like he's just like he is killing it and the movie around him is like just okay but he's like he's scary in that yeah movie. so he's scary like, he's like genuinely unnerving because like he's just like he's not like a super villain he's just like an arms dealer but he's so like ruthless he doesn't give a shit about anything and it's like such a good, scary performance. And man, I miss Philip Seymour Hoffman. Every, every time I watch an old movie with him in it, I'm just like, God damn, I really wish we yeah. had gotten like another decade of Philip Seymour Hoffman because think of all the, the roles we lost out of seeing him play because he was just one of the best of the best. And he's so good in that movie. And yeah, I, I definitely agree that he's the best villain the franchise has had it. And, uh, you know, I, I, I don't mind Solomon Lane. They keep bringing him back, but he's, mm-hmm. he's, he's no Philip Seymour Hoffman. He's no Owen Davian. Remember this yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, do you think this movie is ground zero for the Tom Cruise running meme? Because I think, you know, he, he runs a little bit in the very first movie when he throws the gum at the, at the glass and like run, outruns the water splashing out of that restaurant. Um, but he doesn't really run very much in Mission Impossible 2. And then there's that shot in MI3 where I think it's in Shanghai where Abrams just like lets the camera go and 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 then cruises in like a full on sprint for what's what feels like I don't know 45 seconds or something. And it just feels like he's really giving him the showcase moment of like, all right, this is going to be, you know, one of the key action scenes, even though it's not really action. It's just 
the camera moving really fast and you just completely hauling ass through this little <laughs> uh, tunnel or whatever in Shanghai. So can you think of a moment, Chris, in the, in a Tom Cruise movie before this where he is just like going all out uh, in the in the way that he does in MI3? You know, this is going to be a deep cut, but there's a scene in the movie Far and Away directed by Ron Howard starring Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman um, where at the very, the whole movie is about, they want to get like land or something. I can't remember. I haven't seen it in so long, but at the very end, there's like this thing where a bunch of people have to run down this hill and stake their claim to a spot of land so they can build a house on there. And so he, he runs down the hill in that movie, but that's like the only movie I can think of before then where he's like running. So I think, <laughs> I think you might be right that this is like the beginning of, of the, the Tom Cruise, like, he runs on the is is that the one with the bridge too, where he's running on the bridge and like a missile blows him yes. sideways. Yes, it is. Yeah. So I definitely think this is like the start of, especially for the Mission Impossible movies, where it's like this guy can run really fast. We got to make we have to. I, I I also wonder like how it came about. Like, did Tom Cruise know he's like I'm a fucking great runner? You got to let me run in this movie, or if it was just like a a natural progression? Because Tom Cruise seems like someone who just like if he sets his mind to something, he's going to become the best. He's like the Michael Jordan of acting. Yes. <laughs> and he's like, I, so I wonder if like, that was the first time he ran a lot in the movie. And he was like, you know what? We got to keep this going. And I'm going to learn to be the best runner you've ever seen in mm-hmm. a movie. And he just, he trained his body to run really fast. <laughs> yeah. That's a good question. Um, uh, yeah. I, I wonder if like, Hmm, I, I might try to, interview jj abrams and ask him about that or something that would be that would be fun to find what out what was the the origin of tom cruise runner I, yeah. I would love to know that i would love to know the answer um so two things real quick uh far and away is that the movie where they have like irish accents yes it's the okay. one where tom cruise is a very bad irish accent All right, very, i've never seen bad. that i'll have to uh i'll have to check that out i've heard very bad things about that film but um but maybe it's worth watching uh and then um one more question about Mission Impossible. What was it? Uh, oh, the the rabbit's foot, which is like the MacGuffin of this movie. Um, the whole thing is like Owen Davian needs the rabbit's foot. He essentially like blackmails Cruz into or Ethan Hunt into uh, stealing it for him because he has um, Julia hostage. And then we don't actually see the uh, the heist we see like him going into the building and then they make uh, Abrams and the, the screenwriters make this, uh, I think actually Abrams co-wrote the screenplay. Uh, they make this decision to not show us what, you know, the actual heist looks like. And then we never really find out what the rabbit's foot was. Um, I remember at the time feeling cheated by that a little bit and being like, Oh man, like mission impossible is all about the heists. Like why, yeah. You know, why don't we get to see what that is? But I, I, watching it this time, it did not bother me at all. And I thought it was like a clever um, sort of uh, subversion of, of our expectations. So how do you come down on that? Yeah, I think I'm right there with you. I like that it's like, oh, you know what, you, you know, you're used to expecting something a certain way. We're going to try and do it differently. That, again, feels like a very J.J. Abrams thing where he's like, ah, how can I, how can I twist this? And, and you know, so I, I do think. I think it works. And uh, I, I kind of like that the MacGuffin is never explained because that's that also goes back to Notorious too. Like that Notorious has that whole thing where they're, they never explain what the hell the formula or whatever it is yeah. they're looking for. So I feel like that's a fun little thing to be like, who cares what it is that you just need to know they need it. And that's, that's what matters most. Yeah. Excellent. All right. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm very much looking forward to the new uh, indie movie, the new mission impossible movie. And uh, maybe we'll, we'll reconvene Chris when those films come out and talk yeah. about our, our thoughts about those. Um, all right. I think that's going to do it for today's episode of the show. You can find more about a lot of what we mentioned on today's show at slashfilm.com. The slash film show is published two times a week, bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. You can subscribe to the show on Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please subscribe to our newsletter. There's a link for that in the show notes. Send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns, and mailbag topics to us at bpearson at slashfilm.com. Make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends, spread the word. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.